<laughs> we work so hard to get stronger, happier, more productive and successful. Don't forget the secret ingredient. Get grounded in play. Play grounding when it's time to get a life. Hello and welcome back to Playgrounding. I'm Kara Stewart-Fortier and just back from my week in Las Vegas for Infocom. Wow, that was amazing. So many different types of technologies. It was huge. I wanted, I had talked about doing a segment at the end of each episode giving little updates on my adventures because I'm doing a little experiment on myself. I'm, I'm looking at how to approach big scary life decisions like trying to explore other career opportunities with a playful mindset. And I don't mean just career opportunities within what I've been doing for the last 10 years, brand new ones. So starting something brand new in my 40s as if I'm just out of high school. So um, it's scary, but I'm having a lot of fun with it. And um, yeah, so instead of doing pieces on the podcast as I go, I'm going to blog as I go instead, because I feel like what I'd love to do is present an entire episode on this when I've kind of see where this might come out. And I, I like for the podcast episodes to have a little more of a like beginning, middle and end. But right now I'm just in the middle. I'm just exploring. So check out the blog section on playgrounding.com. Be sure to subscribe there. But for now, let's get started on today's topic. Today, I'm really excited because I'm starting a series that I think will kind of help set the parameters for everything going forward on this podcast, all my guests, everything. I am going to talk in these next few episodes about how finding a playground can set you free and what type of playground that needs to be. I know in episode 11, we talked about escaping our cages, about identifying and plotting a course away from the things that tie us down. But then what? There has to be a second step. You know, sometimes our discontent is so ingrained that it's hard to know what to do when you actually get out of the cage. The door is open. It might even seem easier just to go back inside because that's what we know. But please don't do that. Um, listen to my podcast. <laughs> Over the next five episodes, including today, we're going to talk about how to create circumstances that make play possible. And I mean real play, the kind that can change your outlook on life. Um, so I want to start with Dr. Stuart Brown, um, the book he wrote called Play. I've talked about it before. Um, I linked to it in the show notes for today. And also, I'm thinking I'm going to start a resources section because I think this is a really important book to read. Um, he very reluctantly defined play. He didn't want to. He said, you know, it's hard to define something like play because the activities people use to play or, or play with are different for everyone. But he did identify some things that are the same for everyone when it comes to really transformative play. The, the powerful freedom that play can bring to our lives, there are just certain things that those types of play have in common. And here they are, the seven properties of play. Love it. I love sounding like a scientist. Um, here we go. Number one, play is apparently purposeless. It's done for its own sake. It has no practical value there's no reason for it. It's not done for survival. Um, this is why, you know, when they study animals, um, play behavior is identified because it's not actually moving the needle. It's not helping them find food. It's not helping to, 
I don't know, do any of the things that animals need to stay alive in the wild. Um, and we, as animals, um, play is the same with us. It's something that is done for no good reason whatsoever. Complete nonsense. Number two, it's voluntary. There is no obligation required by duty. Um, that kind of seems like a no-brainer after number one. It has no purpose. Um, but just to just say, like, it's something we engage in just because. It's purposely, and we do it for no good reason because we want to. Um, it, play has an inherent attraction. It's number three. It's fun. It inherently makes us feel good. It, it provides what uh, scientists call psychological arousal. Um, it's exciting. It's, I love this, this definition he gives. It's a cure for boredom. It's, it's fun to do. So that's number three. It's inherently attractive. We're doing it of our own volition because it's fun. Um, number four, this is where we start getting into the interesting stuff. We feel a freedom from time. We lose a sense of passage of time when we're playing. You know, they say time flies when you're having fun. Um, this is a very important thing about play. Number five, again, one of the interesting ones, we feel a diminished consciousness of self. We stop worrying, as Dr. Brown says, about whether we look good or awkward, smart or stupid. We stop thinking about the fact that we are thinking. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, this is huge. It's an imaginative play. Um, we can even be somebody else. We can be someone we're not or in the zone. Um, number six, improvisational potential. Play has improvisation in, associated with it. There's not a rigid way of doing things. Um, you don't, you know, we're open to any possibilities when you're in that play mode. Um, he says, we are willing to include seemingly irrelevant elements into our play. And the act of play itself may be outside of our normal activities and the result is that we stumble upon new behaviors, thoughts, strategies, movements, or ways of being. We see things in a different way and have fresh insights. So like when you're in the middle of a really intense project and you're, you're sludging through it and then you give yourself that time to take a break and go do something completely nonsensical and then you come back and suddenly you're just zooming. You get it. You're there. You're kind of in a flow in your work. Play actually helps bring this out in us. Um, in, a, in a playful activity, it can actually help us in another area of our lives. That's another huge thing to go into. Um, number seven, there's a continuation desire. Duh! Um, we don't want to stop. We have a desire to keep going. We don't want to stop playing. We don't want to stop the activity. And when we have to stop, we look forward to doing it again. So those are Stuart Brown's seven properties of play. And I really want to read you his summary at the end of his giving the, like, listing out these properties. In the book, he says, these properties are what make play, for me, the essence of freedom. The things that most tie you down or constrain you, the need to be practical, to follow established rules, to please others, to make good use of time, all wrapped up in self-conscious guilt, are eliminated. Play is its own reward, its own reason for being. Um, I absolutely love this man. I love that he puts all this together like this and helps us really look at it um, kind of clinically, but also in a way that helps us really redefine play in our lives. Um, the problem is, like, after we read this and we know this, the kind of question is, what's next? It's kind of like 
when you get out of the cage, when, you're, when you identify what's holding you back and you start actually trying to, to get out, what do you do to find that kind of play? Adults, we don't really get these opportunities. When we were kids, it was expected of us to play. And a lot of our play did meet a lot of those, have a lot of those properties. But under what types of circumstances can we give ourselves as adults the opportunity to experience these things again? It doesn't come easy after you grow up. But it's just as important now as it were as it was back when we were kids. So on the podcast, you know, I've, I've, I recognize this. I was excited about this. I've had some really interesting people talking about how they play, how they use play to approach their careers and their relationships and life decisions. But what I really haven't gotten into is myself, um, how I discovered play. I've been kind of talking about the benefits and the things that have been amazing since I have discovered play. Um, but it's about time I kind of gave you a little idea of my playground and how I discovered a place and a a type of play that really encompasses all of these things, but it requires a playground. Um, You have to have a place to play, and um, that's what we're going to talk about in just a minute. So I rediscovered play at the age of 38 at Burning Man. Yes, 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 I know. People have lots of opinions about Burning Man, just hear me out. Um, People who haven't been have all kinds of scary stories about why it sounds like the weirdest place in the world, and it really is, but it's also, oh my God, amazing, and I just, just give me a chance and hear me out. Um, This is an annual week-long experiment in temporary community, and I'm not going to call it a festival, long story, (laughs) just kind of don't want to try to define it because every time someone tries to do that, it leads to confusion. And I kind of hate when someone says, this is what Burning Man is, without prefacing that what they're saying is that that's what Burning Man is to them, because it's like two children being on a giant playground telling that what they did on the playground was what a playground is when one kid was on a swing and the other one was out playing soccer with their friends. Um, it, I don't know two burners who describe it the same way. So if you learn anything about Burning Man from me, it's going to be within the context of my experience. Um, but I believe that Burning Man, whether it's in the Nevada desert or any of the hundreds of regional burns around the world, it provides us, you know, stodgy grown-ups with a playground and it helps us experience Dr. Brown's properties of play. When I first heard the TED Radio Hour episode, Press Play, the one that I talk about all the time ad nauseum, um, it's the reason why I started this podcast in the first place. Um, but when I first heard it in the car the day it came out or the weekend it came out, I'd already attended Burning Man for several years. And I remember sitting in my car so excited listening to Guy Raz interviewing a woman named Isabel Izquierdo on her study of play and bonobo monkeys. Um, in this interview, she was a scientist. She said she had been studying these monkeys out in the wild, but then she decided she wanted to compare her study of bonobos and their love for play with adults. And she wanted to study adults playing in the wild. And immediately the first thing I thought of was, well, she should come to Burning Man. Uh, there was no other per- more perfect place. And 
apparently I was right. Moments later, that's what they said she did. She went to Burning Man to study us at the 2014 burn. I was there. I was a mouse in somebody's, you know, study. That was, that's very exciting to me. Um, she even did a TEDx at Black Rock City, which is the name of the temporary city we build out there every year. So yeah, this woman is pretty legit. She's pretty amazing. And Guy Raz had to make mention of the cliche. A lot of people say Burning Man changed my life. And it is a cliche because so many people say that after their first time at, the, at Burning Man. And I thought about it for a long time after I heard that episode. And I thought, what makes that such a cliche? What what is it that changes so many people's lives? And like I said, you know, different stories from every single person you talk to. And I honestly don't think it was Burning Man per se. It was in a way because that's where it happened. But it was something more fundamental than that. It's not a, it's not like a sacred thing that a particular group of people started on a beach in San Francisco and the pretty music playing in the background, you know, and then they had to go draw a line in the sand out in the Nevada desert. And actually, it's a really cool story, but I don't think it's necessarily because it was those particular people. Um, It unfolded in this way because Burning Man set up the perfect circumstances for adults to relearn play. It, It gave us this opportunity There are so many forces at work, you know, in our overly earnest grown-up brains that keep us from play that it takes something really drastic sometimes to help us get back there. And that's what Burning Man did for me, Um, just like it's done it for thousands of others. It set up a playground and gave us burned-out adults the opportunity to experience those characteristics of play. Um, So in the next five episodes, I'm going to explore the characteristics of what I think make a great playground. I mean, I just happened to find all of them at Burning Man, but yours could be found somewhere else. Um, So I'm going to use it as an example, but I'm not necessarily saying you have to go there to relearn play. Although I do believe that our playground should really have these types of characteristics in order to help us. We're wound up, you know, adults that are trying to get out of our cages to help us learn how to have a playful approach to life again. We have to have a place to go where we'll experience these four things. So in the next four episodes, I'm going to talk about how a great playground is a world into itself, um, not as easy to find as you might think. Um, Number two, a great playground has endless possibilities with no expectations. Another thing that adults don't get a lot in their own play, just think about the things that you do for fun. A lot of times they're very social. We do them with our coworkers. Um, we do them with our families. A lot of times there really are expectations, the same social pressures we experience in our regular everyday lives. So endless possibilities with no expectations. Number three, a great playground is a little bit dangerous. And yeah, it's actually, yeah, we'll talk about that one in the, in the third one of this series. Number four, a great playground lets you play with your own identity. Um, so these are the four aspects of a playground that I'm going to be talking about in the upcoming episodes. And this week, I want to start by giving you a little background behind what brought me to that playground, because I am the unlikeliest person that would ever go to Burning Man. But I feel like everybody says that, but I don't know. That's it's me. (laughs) And it feels weird telling this story. I mean, it's, it's kind of scary. I've been so excited to start a podcast, but I've been scared to show a little, you know, too much of me, but that's never a good way to start good relationships. And, 
if I want to get stories from my guests, then I feel like as the host, I should probably, you know, kind of let you into my world and let you know where I've come from and why this is so important to me. So before I launch into the characteristics of a great playground, I want to tell you what led me into finding my own. Bastion. Why don't you do what you dream, Bastion? But I can't. I keep my feet on the ground. I had friends asking me to go to Burning Man about 10 years before I finally went. I mean, the timing was never right. I wasn't ready for it. I was just coming off of my own kind of crazy ride. I had lived in New York City for a few years, and I was determined to come home and do the responsible thing and go to grad school, start a career. Yay me. No playing around. No playing around. I mean, I I had played a lot, and I felt guilty, and nothing came of it. I had done things that I enjoyed, and I was kind of feeling fruitless, and I was kind of lost. So I figured, you know what? This is the one strategy I haven't really tried recently, so I'm just going to plant my feet and go for it. Um, but <laughs> then I meet these people. I mean, I had heard the stories and seen the pictures from the burn. I mean, I knew a lot of people from one of the oldest Burning Man camps, but there was something about them that made me really uncomfortable. I mean, they were loud and they wore funny costumes without even having it be Halloween. They threw dessert and cocktail parties where everything had to have bacon in it. Dessert, cocktails, all bacon related. I mean, <laughs> I didn't get it. Or Anyway, they were, they were just kind of, you know, irreverent and they're sure of themselves and comfortable being themselves. And for me, being myself just was not an option. At least that's not how I saw it at the time. I, I think back then, I was just trying to help keep my feet on the ground. You know, I, the attacks of September 11th happened about a year into my time in New York and definitely a story for another time. But my whimsical, silliness ways of my 20s seemed really, really irresponsible to me after that. And I went from being an actor and a bartender and being really, really happy about it to my first cubicle job in a matter of months. And um, yeah, I, I didn't enjoy it, but feeling sorry for myself was not an option. You know, I mean, the smell of the smoke from the towers is still hanging in the air. I'm going to sit here and boo-hoo that I have a job, that I finally found one, and so many other people had to turn tail and go home. Um, I was just happy to be there. And I knew when I finally did decide to come back home where I had a better support system back in the Los Angeles area, I needed to put my nose down, get down to real life, and live up to my potential, and make something of myself. Um, yeah, so when I met those burners, when I came back to LA, I did not understand them at all. Or, or maybe like I did, but they made me feel bad. Because um, seeing them enjoy themselves made me feel that loss of fun in my own life. Like I had to completely shift my entire mindset, and it wasn't something I really wanted but here they were embracing being frivolous and nonsensical and you know frivolity was definitely something I needed to leave behind um the best way I can think to describe it is from the little movie clip that I played earlier it's if you've ever seen the fantasy movie from the 80s the never-ending story please watch this movie I was like little bastion and he was a little boy who skipped school to read a book in the school's attic he was being pressured by the adults in his life to stop playing. You know, he was still a little boy, but his dad was kind of military type. 
or maybe I'm just thinking that because the guy who played his dad was also like major dad at the time. I don't remember if his dad was a military type. But anyway, um, <laughs> that doesn't actually apply to anything. But his father kept telling him to keep his feet on the ground. And, he, you know, he didn't really know how to do that. He's this little kid and he has these impulses to dream and to play and to read fantasy books. Um, but he was trying really hard to please his dad. And at the end of the movie... There's this really dramatic moment where he's reading this fantasy story that he shouldn't be reading. You know, he's already kind of breaking the rules. He's cutting school. He's reading this book in the attic. Um, but the story in the book that he's reading climaxes. And the fate of all the characters in the story rests in his hands. And he's the reader, which is weird. Um, but the empress in the story, a Fantasia, and if you haven't seen this, please don't think this is weird. If you have, you'll totally get this. She's pleading with him to stay in the story with her to keep on reading and to be there. And I know it's weird to have a conversation between a character and a book and the person reading it, but this has stayed with me for years. Little Bastion is yelling back at the Empress in the book who's pleading with him to stay in the story to keep his imagination alive. And he says, I can't. I have to keep my feet on the ground. And the, I mean, that was, that was me. That was exactly me. Um, and the result of that is the fantasy world that he'd built in his childhood all crumbling apart into nothingness. And that's exactly what happens to so many of us and why it's such a powerful story. And that's exactly kind of what I had to do when I came home from New York. And by the time I met those burners, I had, you know, <laughs> I kept my promise to myself and my parents. I wanted to just live up to being this very adult good person who's good at adulting um, of course in the movie the empress gets her way the land is saved and bastion has a new spring in his step spoilers um it's a kid's movie you know what did you expect but in my story i kept saying no and my feet were firmly on the ground um anyway if you haven't actually seen that movie you must be 12 um <laughs> but I really highly recommend the adult novel by Michael End. It's the movie is loosely based on it, and it's the story. The story in the movie is only about 150 pages of this 600-page book, and oh my gosh, it's just a super powerful story for all ages. Um, don't watch the second movie that they made; it was horrible. But definitely read this book. And in it, Atreyu is actually green. There are so many awesome things that they couldn't do in the movie back in the 80s. So anyway, all right. Getting back to the story. At this point, honestly, looking back on how I was back then, I really, really wish that I had a time machine and I could go back to 2003 and tell myself, go to Burning Man, Kara, go to Burning Man. I wish I could have somehow told myself that. I wish I had the experience of Burning Man before I started making big career decisions. I wish I let myself learn how to play. I wish I let myself get to know those crazy burners back then, but I didn't. So fast forward a decade, 2013, um, when I moved into the brewery, my house was originally established and built out by burners. It was, I, I found this connection through those old friends and I ended up living in a place that was originally established to help these local burners or from a specific camp to call home in LA. So how could I live here and not finally go? I mean, I had my excuse. Besides, I was super miserable at the time. I had nothing to lose. Uh, my feet were definitely planted on the ground like lead weights at this point. I think I was, you know, trudging through life. I was sucking it up. Um, so also, I kind of saw these people differently. I, I 
see them 10 years later, I'm, I'm observing them 10 years later, and I'm not really uncomfortable with them anymore. Well, I was. I was uncomfortable. I realized that I was uncomfortable in my skin, and they weren't. They helped me notice that, you know, to see that there was another way to approach life. And I saw them living life, doing their thing, and I wanted what they had. I, I needed more bacon cocktails and nonsense in my life. And at this point, I started to really realize it. Um, so in those months leading up to my first burn, one of the first indications that something very different was about to happen was that I remember thinking that the feeling I had leading up to it was kind of like how I felt as a little kid when summer camp was just a few months away, that anticipation that was like butterflies, or like I was in college and was getting ready to go on my first trip overseas to Albania. I was going to see a brand new place, a, a country that just opened up its borders for the first time. It was the very last communist dictatorship to fall, and I was going to be there the same year that it opened up. And I had that feeling then. It was that, that those butterflies, that excitement. And I realized that in my entire adult life, since college, I hadn't had that feeling about anything, nothing. I, don't, I couldn't remember the last time I felt that anticipation, even though I recognized the feeling from my childhood. But I figured, you know, I'm a grown-up now, and, you know, it's cool that I can feel this way, but that's normal to not feel that way about anything. But I knew that that was like a, a spark that I wasn't going to forget. Um, that anticipation and the excitement, it was super new. Um, and I feel it right now because the burn is in two months and I'm so excited. Anyway, <laughs> I could spend hours and run a whole nother podcast for several years just about Burning Man experiences and all the amazing things that I and other people experience out there. I mean, I love it so much. I host a monthly meetup in our home so that LA burners from all over the east part of Los Angeles can keep in touch with each other throughout the year here in downtown. I'm, I am now... I'm proud to say that I am loud and irreverent and wear costumes for no reason. <laughs> Not as cool as those people, though. They're still my, my idols. Um, blue hair definitely feels normal to me now. Um, I had a wide array of bacon-related desserts. I have had those now. I've, I've worn onesies to a onesie party. Um, haven't had any bacon cocktails quite yet. Um, I think that's definitely that what they give you at the fifth year. I'm kidding. Um, but I've learned to be myself. I've learned to be silly and I've learned to take up space. Um, I've, I was weirded out by this several years ago, but I think it's because I really, really knew that they had something special. And for the purposes of the next, you know, series of episodes, the next four episodes, I wanted to tell you that I learned how about, I learned about play at Burning Man. Um, I want to tell you about why a scientist and respected TED speaker would go there to research play and a, you know, equally respected NPR uh, podcast would, or actually it's a radio show, but everything's a podcast to me, would uh, bring that into discussion. I mean, Burning Man, some people think of it as silly and frivolous, and but it's a really important cultural phenomenon. And I'm going to bring you my theories about why I believe it sets up the circumstances for adults to experience true freedom and play and in a way that really lets it seep into their daily lives as well. But please, please, please don't worry. I'm not advocating that everyone quit their jobs and dye their hair blue. That was my path. I was super silly before I developed the lead-footed syndrome, so I kind of just returned to myself. Um, your path will look different from mine. Um, and just as some burners create fiery art and some create innovative technologies and 
some write books and launch rockets into space, you know, we're all super different. So that's just how radically different burners are. And there are radically different people all over this world who are creating playgrounds for themselves and for others. And so I just want to kind of, you know, I want to, I think I'm onto something here. And I think I know what it took to bring joy back and creativity and excitement and the things that make life worth living. And I think I found it in play. And I think Burning Man provided that, provides that for a whole lot of people. So, so if you haven't already, please subscribe. <laughs> please subscribe and make sure you don't miss these next four episodes. The next four episodes are really going to help me lay the groundwork for what I want Playgrounding to be all about. So you can subscribe by signing up to receive episodes via email on playgrounding.com or you'll find direct links to Playgrounding's pages on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and a lot of the other ones on the website as well, playgrounding.com. Thank you so much for listening. I will see you next time.